Why don't you um, grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 15. Um, There was a man who was marooned on a deserted island, and uh, a ship happened to go by, and they saw this man, and they came to his rescue, and as they went to the island to get him, um, the captain of the ship learned that this man had lived alone on the island for five years. And on the island, there was three huts that had clearly been built, and so the captain asked about these huts, and so the man said, well, I lived in that first one, and the captain said, well, what's the second hut for? And the man said, well, that's where I go to church. Well, what about that third hut, the captain asked, and the man replied, oh, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) um, Today, we're talking about what what is our relation with other believers? And the reason I like that joke is like, he's the only guy on the island and still he finds something that he doesn't like about his old church, right? But as believers, right, we've been in chapter 15 and I, and I said last week that Jesus basically talks about our relation with him, with um, other people, other believers, which is today's message. How do you and I interact together as brothers and sisters in Christ? And then, and then next week, Jesus is going to tell us, how do we then interact with the world? And I I hope that you'll notice as we go along that all three are very interconnected, right? Our relationship with Jesus directly impacts our relationship with each other and with the world. And our relationship with each other impacts the others as well, and they're all kind of interrelated. So what is our relationship to other believers? Um, It's a fact that the church historically doesn't always do a good job of showing love to each other. Um, This week I looked up um, numerous articles just curiously, you know, I I would Google, why do people reject Christianity? And you have to understand, whenever you read an article like that, you have to take it with a grain of salt, right? Because it's, uh, there's spiritual reasons, but um, there were surveys done, and I probably read, you know, half a dozen, seven, eight articles about, you know, 10 reasons why people reject Christianity, five, the top five reasons, eight reasons, whatever it was. But guaranteed in all of those lists of why, as they interviewed people, why, don't, why aren't you a Christian? Why, why, why do you reject Christianity? At, there was at least one reason, and it was some iteration of, well, all Christians are hypocrites and just mean to each other. Right? And so, again, take it with a grain of salt, but people from the outside looking in said, why would I go join a group of people where all they do is bicker and argue with each other? I got better things to do with my time, right? Um, even Gandhi, years ago, he says this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So, in our passage today, verses 12 through 17 of John 15, basically four things we want to talk about. Um, What does love for each other actually look like? Why does Jesus seem to be stressing love so much? What are the hindrances that we have to actually loving one another? And then really practically at the end, well, how do we actually go about doing this? So if you have a Bible, uh, you can follow along. John 15 And I'll start reading in verse 12. So keep in mind, this is continuing right after Jesus has said, abide in me, right? I'm the vine, you are the branches. 
I've spoken these things that your joy is full. And then he says in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The reading of God's word. So firstly, what does love look like? Um, the command to love one another as believers uh, in Jesus, it's, it kind of bookends our passage, right? Verse 12, Jesus says, this is my commandment, love one another. And then at the end in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And, and Jesus has already spoken about love. If you remember in chapter 13, he says, I'm giving you a new command, love each other, love one another as I have loved you. And so it seems to be that, that you and I, believers, our love for each other is very important to Jesus. Now, the command for you and I to love each other isn't what's necessarily new, because if you read the Old Testament, um, they were told lots, love your neighbor as yourself, and, and different laws about treating your neighbor and loving them. And, and so it's not as if everyone before Jesus hated each other, and now Jesus is saying, hey, this is the new thing, love each other. No, What's new about this command is how we love each other. So Jesus says, I want you to love each other just like I love you. And so then he tells us, what does that look like? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus says, I want you to love each other like I've loved you. And here's what it looks like. Sacrificial, humble service for each other. So if we ask, well, what does, what does love actually look like? Well, it looks like the cross, really. It looks like Jesus laying down his life for us. Um, even in 1 John 3.16, most likely written by the same author as the Gospel of John, it says this, by this we know love, right? Like how do you and I know love? By this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, so I love that Jesus in this passage, he doesn't give um, specific practices. Like if you remember when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he said, hey, you guys need to do this for one another. But in this passage, he doesn't say, okay, love each other as I loved you. No greater love is this. Now let me give you five ways that you can show love to each other. He, do he doesn't give us specifics, but overall it's this picture of sacrifice. Sacrifice for each other. Lay down your life for one another. Now, here's what's interesting. Love for God is presupposed, right? So, notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, this is my new commandment for you. Love God, and we go, so, so it's not as if we can go, oh, sweet, I don't have to love God. I only have to love other people. No, the love of God is presupposed, 
And actually, your, your love for one another is so intrinsically connected to your love for God. Even in 1 John, again, chapter 4, um, uh, the apostle says this, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So loving God is presupposed, right, in Jesus' new command that he gives us. And I love that the, the, in First John he says, if you say, I love God, but you hate each other, you're proving that you actually don't love God, right? They're so interconnected. So what does this kind of love look like in the day in and day out of our lives? It looks like believers um, sacrificing for each other. Um, it could mean literally laying down your life. Um, it, could, it could mean that you will literally die for some people in this room. That Jesus, it could mean that. And I actually think, I think we find that easier that we go, yes, you know what, in some brave sacrificial moment, I could throw myself on the line for somebody. And, that, and Jesus might call you to do that, but more importantly, in the day in and day out, will you die to yourself and serve one another? And I, I was trying to think of examples of this, and I'm not going to belabor it because I know that you know examples of this. I know that so many of you have been on the receiving end of that when a fellow believer uh, sacrifices for you, and whether it's they help you financially or they just bless you in a certain way or if they, whatever it is, right? And I know so many of you are, are the ones who do that for each other. My wife and I have been on the receiving end of that where it's, you know, we were thinking of you and here's some food and here's some baked goods. Let us watch your kids. Like, that's what it practically looks like in the day in and day out of life, putting other people ahead of ourselves, and when I first started into ministry, so this is probably um, 15 years ago, um, I was interning at a church and going to seminary, and the church paid me $500 a month because I don't know why churches do that. You got to suffer for Jesus. We're going to pay you nothing. Uh, but so $500 a month, and then I'm trying to pay for seminary, and I'm working at the church. And there was a lady in the, the church in Maple Ridge. Her name was Ruth. And she was recently widowed, probably in her early 70s. And so I'm trying to find a place to live, making $500 a month. Where am I going to find a place to live that I can pay for rent and food and school and all of these things? And this godly uh, woman, Ruth, said, I have a basement, and I would like you to just live in it for free. You don't have to pay me anything. You can have the whole basement. And then she said, and you know what? I don't want you to feel obligated to come eat with an old lady every night, but anytime you want to have any meals with me, don't even, you don't even have to pay me for food. And I, I remember going, why are you doing this? <laughs> because she was a believer, seeing another believer who needed help, and she just opened up, she sacrificed, right? Love one another as Jesus loved you. I mean, we could just spend, I bet we could pass a mic around and, and just say, what are ways that believers have sacrificed for you? And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what love looks like. Love goes so far beyond just the, well, I just feel like affection for you. No, love in, in the Bible is, it's tangible. Love is sacrifice in the Bible. 
And so Jesus is challenging us. Do you want to know what love for fellow believers looks like? Will you sacrifice for them? Even James talks about that in James chapter uh, 2, right? He says, if you see a brother or sister in need and you go, well, I love you, (laughs) praying for you, hope you figure out your problems. James says, what good is that? Help them, right? And so yet we, we, we do that sometimes. So Jesus says, this is what love looks like. Are you willing as brothers and sisters in Christ to sacrifice for each other? Now, here's what's so fascinating. In this passage about love for one another, it's like Jesus can't help but talk about his love for us, right? And, and he almost kind of goes on this parentheses where uh, he, he talks about, this is my relationship with you, my followers. Like verse 14, he says, you, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So our modern day view of friendship struggles with this and we go, wait, that seems slightly off. So I can only be Jesus' friend if I obey him. Like, imagine if one of your, you know, earthly friends said that. If I was like, Cameron, I would love to be your friend as long as you obey everything I tell you to do. He'd be like, uh, no thanks. I don't want to be your friend. But that seems odd. So here, but you have to remember, here's Jesus, the creator of the universe, God in the flesh. So it changes it, doesn't it? Right? If we said that to each other, we would, that's just odd. Why are you talking like that. Now, here's what's really key, though. Obedience is not what makes them friends. Obedience is what characterizes their friendship. And again, we've talked about, you know, putting the the cart before the horse, right? I obey God, therefore I'm accepted. No, 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 no. You're accepted, therefore you obey God. Same, Same here. You don't become a friend of Jesus by simply obeying him perfectly. If I can just obey all the rules, yes, I've earned my friendship with Jesus, No, you obey Jesus because you are his friend. Obedience to Jesus is how you and I exhibit our friendship to the world. This is what it looks like to be a friend of Jesus. Um, If friendship was conditional on our obedience, then Jesus would have said something like this, if you do the things I command you, then you will be my friends. And that would make our friendship with him dependent on our performance But literally, it says, you are my friends if you're doing the things I command you. Right up front, Jesus says, you are my friends. And that'll be evident by you doing the things that I command you to do. And really, verse 14 is a stunning level of comfortable personal interaction with the creator of the universe, the eternal, omnipotent, all-powerful creator of the universe. Jesus is saying, I'm God, and you human beings, you can actually be friends with God. Um, Up until this point in the Old Testament, do you know the only two people who were called friends of God? Abraham and Moses. Like, in the Old Testament, it wasn't like, hey, all you Israelites, you're all friends of God. No, no. Abraham and Moses are called friends of God, and now here we have Jesus saying, if you believe in me and you put your trust in me and you're obedient to me, you are now my friend. In verse 15, Jesus says, I'm not going to call you slaves anymore because the slave doesn't know what the master's doing, but Jesus says, I'm revealing everything that the Father is doing. Now, we can't get hung up on that because in in our passage next week, Jesus calls them slaves again. So you go, it's not as if Jesus is saying, literally, I will never call you slaves again or servants. But what he's saying is, is that your relationship with God is changing because of me. 
And, and the analogy makes sense, right? If you think in, in that ancient world, um, there were so many slaves or servants, whatever you want to call them, and it's not as if a slave would go to the master and say, hey, I'm just wondering why you're making the decisions you're making, or, or can we dialogue about why you're asking me to do this? He'd be like, no, I'm the master. You're my servant. Just go do it. It doesn't concern you what I'm doing, right? And Jesus says, but I'm actually filling you in, right? I'm revealing what the Father has made known to me, so you're now welcomed into this. You're not just a slave anymore. You're my friends. I love that in, in verse 16, um, lest you and I become puffed up and arrogant, right? Because just listen to that. It's like if we just heard, okay, I'm a friend of Jesus. I'm no longer a slave. I'm, I've actually been welcomed into the plan of the Father. We might go, it must be pretty great for Jesus to do that for me. So I love that Jesus in verse 16 reminds us, actually, guys, you didn't choose me, right? I chose you. So it's like he's kind of deflating the arrogance a little bit. Now, now don't think too highly of yourself. Jesus says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. So in the midst of describing our relationship to one another, isn't it fascinating that, that Jesus says, hey, love each other. Now let me spend a little bit of time reminding you yet again of how much I love you and what your relationship with me looks like because it affects how you and I love each other. So Jesus tells us what love looks like. It's, it's sacrifice. Now secondly, why does Jesus stress love so much? Why does he, why does he emphasize love that you and I would have for each other? Um, first of all, I think because it's one of the ways that you and I bear fruit. Um, verse 16, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In this context, what Jesus is talking about is new believers, right? We've talked about bearing fruit, and it's the fruit of the Spirit, and it's a life that's changed, but in this context, Jesus is saying, here's what fruit looks like in your lives. It's more and more people coming to know me, so like Jesus says, I appointed you to go and bear fruit. It's very similar wording to Matthew 28. Go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, so that that kind of fruit abides. So what does that mean? Jesus says, your love for one another, I've chosen you, you're my friends now, you're going to sacrifice for one another, you're going to go out and you're going to make more disciples, bear fruit, and that fruit is going to abide, right? Last week, it's going to stay connected to me. It's going to remain connected to the vine. Um, I think one of the reasons that Jesus stresses love so much, love for, for one another as believers, is because it's a crucial aspect of us going out and making more believers, making more disciples that are going to abide in Jesus. Um, he even tells us in John 13, 35, by this, by what? By our love for one another, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, how is the world going to know that we're disciples of Jesus? Because we love each other. And so as you and I go out and we show sacrificial love for each other, it's going to bear fruit. It's going to bring more believers who are going to remain connected to the vine. So that's why Jesus stresses love on one hand is because it's so connected to our mission to make disciples. Secondly, Jesus stresses mutual love between believers because of what next week's passage is about. 
In next week's passage, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, hey, the world is going to hate you. The world is going to persecute you. You've got enemies, right? Satan, your own flesh, the world, they want to destroy you. They hate you. So you need to stick together and stand united as believers. Like Jesus was going to leave soon and leave his disciples in a hostile world. And as tensions increase and as persecution mounts, there will always be a danger in those intense situations for disciples then to contend with each other. And it's like Jesus is saying, love each other. Don't hate each other. Listen, enough people hate you already. Don't hate each other. Um, If you've ever read uh, Lord of the Rings, um, I won't give you a full synopsis, but right, they have to destroy the one ring, and so they put together a, a, a fellowship of nine individuals who are going to attempt this, and if you know that there's, there's a dwarf there and there's an elf there, and in Lord of the Rings, you know, in that world, dwarves and elves hate each other, right? So you have Legolas and Gimli, and they just fight, right? I would chop off your head if it was a little taller off the ground, and they just, ball, oh, they just bicker and they fight. But it's interesting, as you read on, what happens? They have a deep love for one another. Why? Because when you're on the same team and you see an army of tens of thousands of people who want to kill you, let's lay aside our differences (laughs) because we want to survive, right? That's kind of what Jesus is saying. He's saying next week, listen, the world hates you and it will persecute you. So guys, love each other. You've got enough enemies as it is. Don't Fight against each other. You are going to need one another. I think that's why Jesus stresses mutual love. Thirdly, what hinders us in this pursuit? Right, so you think about it. Jesus calls us to love one another. By this kind of love, the world is going to know that you're my disciples. Love each other. Sacrifice for each other. Lay down your lives for one another. And yet, like we talked about at the beginning, a lot of times the church's reputation in this area isn't, isn't great. And a lot of times people who look from, from the outside in, right, whether, whether right or wrong, and again, take it with a grain of salt, but they look from the outside in and they go, man, these Christians just seem to hate each other. They just fight, they just bicker, they just argue with one another. So why is it so hard sometimes to love each other? And at the beginning of the week, as I was beginning to think about that, um, my first initial thought was, well, it's because we have too many differences. It's all of our differences that make it almost impossible for us to love one another. We have, we have doctrinal differences we have personal differences. We have personality differences. <laughs> we have um, methodological differences, right? How do we uh, do things as a church? But as I thought, I go, no, that's actually not it. I think it's actually how we respond to our differences, which is the problem. Um, and really, what it can boil down to a lot of the times is that it comes down to pride where we go, my view of things is the only right view, and so if you disagree with me, well, then I'm terribly offended, and I think that you don't know what you're talking about, and then we just kind of bicker about things. So if you even think, we'll we'll kind of work through those kind of differences. If you think about doctrinal differences, differences in theology, how we interpret Scripture, what our view is of 
things related to Christianity, our, our theology. Um, recently, we went on a, a road trip, most of you know, where um, we did this big, this big loop, and we went down to visit my parents and Molly's family and then back up. But on our, our trip, we crossed several provincial boundaries, we crossed several state boundaries, and we crossed one big national boundary. And when we crossed a national boundary, it was much different than crossing provincial borders and state borders. And I heard years ago one pastor describe, this is how our view of doctrine should be. There are certain things in the Christian faith that are national borders, that if you disagree, you're in a different country. You're not even in Christianity anymore. And there's certain things in Christianity which are, you know, provincial borders, right? When I, when I drive to Grand Prairie and I cross into the Alberta uh, province and I cross that, that border, do you have to stop and show your passport and, and declare? And no, you just drive. And yet try that at the U.S. border and you'll be shot probably <laughs> because it's different, right? And so, so much of our Christian faith, they're kind of like provincial borders where we go, yeah, you're still a Christian. You're still going to be in heaven. You're still a follower of Jesus. We just disagree about this. So you think about there's certain doctrine that rightly divides us, because it has to. It is an essential truth necessary to the gospel of Jesus. And if you don't believe those things, then I would go, well, maybe you're actually not a Christian. You're outside of the bounds of Christianity, the inspiration and authority of the Bible, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, right? God's three-in-oneness, Father, Son, Spirit, the full deity and full humanity of Jesus, the substitutionary death of Jesus that satisfied God's wrath. Uh, Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave, salvation by grace alone in Christ alone. If you don't believe those things, I mean, you're in a different country. And I would go, I, I actually don't think you're a Christian. This is why um, when we talk about Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, they would say, I'm a Christian just like you. But they deny some of these very crucial aspects. Um, some of you love the show, The Chosen, so I might like ruffle some feathers here. <laughs> but the creator of the chosen, he's come under fire and questioned a lot of his views of are Mormons Christians? And just last week, he posted a video where he finally, I'm going to definitively answer this question. And basically his answer was, I can't say if all Mormons are Christians, but I have very close Mormon friends and I know for sure that they're Christians. And I go, that's, that's impossible the Mormon faith denies the deity of Jesus. He is a created being in their religion. You can't be a Christian if you reject the deity of Jesus, right? So those are, those are certain theological things that rightly divide us, right? So I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? You guys will have different opinions on if I'm God or not. Don't worry about it. That's not what Jesus says. But then you have important but not saving doctrine, and this is, in my opinion, things that you and I as followers of Jesus can disagree on and still be brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Calvinism versus Arminianism. Church governance, how should the church govern itself? Biblical prophecy, gifts of the Spirit, uh, men and women in ministry. Is it an old earth or a young earth? There's all of these kind of secondary things that, don't hear me wrong, they're still important, but it's a provincial boundary where I go, you know what? You, you can view that uh, 
the gifts of the Spirit, uh, or the gifts of the Spirit operate, I, I still think you're a Christian. I can still think you're wrong, but I still believe that you're a Christian. So here's where we, we allow things to, to get really messy. We allow secondary doctrinal issues to affect our love for one another, where we go, I, can't, I have to reject you now because your view of men and women in ministry is different than mine. Nah. So we can't, I, I'm rejecting you as a brother in Christ. You should have strong convictions in your theology, but a question that I've asked myself recently, if, if I disagree with someone theologically, do I still think they're a follower of Jesus? Will I be in heaven with them? Then why on earth would I allow a secondary thing to cause division here and now? So I'll give you an example. When I became a pastor in the MB conference, I grew up Baptist. Woo! Any? No? I grew up Baptist, and uh, uh, I was, worked at a Baptist church. And then when, when you become a, a pastor in the MB conference, you have to write a big 60-page uh, thing and answer all of these theological questions. They want to know everything you believe about everything. And then you go and you sit in front of a, a, a panel of people, and they've all read your theological paper, and then they just, like, grill you on stuff. I felt like I was on trial for a crime because it's so nerve-wracking. And um, my, my theological bent differs from a lot of MB churches. And so we sat there, and we discussed, okay, Andrew, you believe this, and it's actually not quite what we b- believe and I actually found it very comforting because at the end they said, again, they were all secondary things. It wasn't like, there's many paths to God or things like that. <laughs> but they said, Andrew, can you work with people that you disagree with? And I said, yes, I have in the past. Absolutely. I can work with people that I disagree with over secondary theological things. And so foolishly, they let me be a pastor in the MBA <laughs> But that's doctrinal differences, right? I think sometimes we like to major on the minors. What I mean by that is we have minor theological differences, and yet we say these are major things, and we can't have love or unity because we disagree. Now, secondly, there's just personal differences, right? I'm not even going to get into personality difference. That's like a whole other sermon. But we have personal differences. So we have churches that they go, you know what? We homeschool. We, we send our kids to public school. We go to Christian school. And believe it or not, there's Christians who go, I have to break fellowship with you because I think that you are sinning if you send your kids to public school. And so we argue over these personal differences. We have, we have Christians who debate, should, should Christians drink alcohol or not? Should we abstain? Do we partake? And, and then we break fellowship and love for each other based on our, our preferences. And Paul even talks about that in Romans 14. So listen, it's not a new thing that the church argues over stuff, (laughs) right? There was people in the Roman church who were arguing that as Christians, we have to keep the Sabbath. And some were saying, no, Jesus has fulfilled that. The Sabbath is every day. We get rest from our work every single day. Some were eating meat sacrificed to idols and some weren't. And what does Paul say? Does he come in and go, well, these guys are right. Everyone else, you're out of the church. No, he goes, have a firm decision in your mind, and then in Romans 14, 19, he ends by saying, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He goes, guys, this is not a major issue. If it bothers you to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, don't. If, if you don't care, g- go at it, but build each other up with peace and mutual upbuilding. 
Then there's, there's meth- methodological differences from church to church. It's the way we do things. Do we sing hymns or choruses? Do we serve communion or do people come up and, and, and get it? Um, do we have wine or grape juice? I recently watched an interview from a pastor in the States, very popular pastor, and he said, if your church serves grape juice, you're sinning. And I just kind of went, man, you are majoring on a minor issue. This is a methodological thing that really that's what we're going to break fellowship over because we have Welch's instead of wine? Really? Do we stand for the Word of God or do we sit when it's read? Um, Do do we have to meet in a specific building or can we meet in, in homes? Does that count as church? Like on and on and on. The differences aren't the problem. It's how we respond to the differences. And we just, we just are not good at disagreeing because we, what happens is lots of times we become prideful and then we think, well, my way has to be the right way. And then that causes division and bickering and fighting and no love for each other. Again, I don't want you to hear me wrong that theology doesn't matter. It matters immensely. But there's certain theological differences that should not divide us. So how do we do this then? Like practically, right? Jesus says, I want you to sacrifice for each other, lay down your lives. Why? Because it's going to show the world that you're my disciples and you're going to bear fruit. More people are, are going to come to know Jesus through your love for each other. And the world hates you enough. Don't hate each other. So how do we actually, how do we do this? I mean, when Jesus commands us to love each other, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. He says, love each other. I think, firstly, it's connected to last week's message. Are we abiding in Jesus? Love for one another is deeply connected to our love for each other. And so, as you, as a follower of Jesus, as you abide in Jesus... And as his words dwell in you, as you receive and believe the gospel, it should transform your hearts. And the more that you abide in Jesus, the more fruit that you bear, right? More love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The more that you abide in Jesus, it will help your relationships. Like if you as a Christian, if you're abiding in Scripture and you're, you're saying that you're abiding in Jesus, yet you're becoming less loving, less joyous, less peaceful, more impatient, more harsh. I mean, there's a disconnect there. The more that you love God, the more you will love others. As you abide in Jesus, it changes your heart so then you have this deep Love for one another. Even people that annoy you, even people that you don't get along with, you go, they're a brother and sister in Christ. I have a deep love for them. We have the same master. And as you abide in Jesus, you can ask him, Jesus, how can I serve my fellow believers? I know some of you have experienced that when the Holy Spirit will just impress someone, a fellow believer on your mind. And you go, I got I to gotta go and see if I can help them. I got to go, you know, get, bring them some food. I got to go and share a Bible passage with them. Like, that's what happens when we abide in, in Jesus, right? We're walking in step with the Spirit. And then we go, Jesus, how can I serve my brothers and sisters in Christ? Secondly, it takes us actually swallowing our pride. 
I love that Jesus says all these amazing things, and in the midst of it, he reminds us it's actually not about you. He says, I love you like the Father loved me. Ask for whatever you want. You're going to have fullness of joy. And then in, in, in like the midst of all of these amazing things, Jesus says, but remember, you didn't choose me. I chose you, right? Don't get a big head. It takes death to pride to sacrificially serve someone without getting anything in return. It really does, because I have been where I go and I sacrifice for someone, and I, and I do something for a fellow believer, and because I'm sinful, I go, well, are you going to do anything in return for me? <laughs> it takes a, a death to pride to go, you know what, I'm going to serve you, and I don't even want any, I'm just serving you because I love you and I love Jesus. It takes a death to pride to go to someone you disagree with and, t- and talk it through. It takes a death to pride to not major on the minor things, to to allow for differences of opinion, to not let that ruin the love that we have for each other. It takes a a death to yourself. So I think if you abide in Jesus, if you swallow your pride, and then lastly, stay focused on the major things, um, this will help you love each other. Um, The world and Satan and your flesh hates you. So don't hate one another. Like when I have a wartime mentality in my faith, when I go, no, I'm at war. Like spiritually, we are in a war. When I have that kind of mentality, I, I don't have time to argue and bicker and fight over secondary things. Every day, people die and go to hell. I don't have time to argue over whether we should serve communion or come up front. It's, it's of little consequence. Do you want to know why, actually, I think in North America lots of times we see so much bickering and fighting? It's because we have had it so good and so cushy for so long that we've had time to sit around and argue over things because I'm not worried about a, being shot for following Jesus. I'm not hiding my family underneath the floorboards because we profess the name of Jesus. We've had it so easy for so long that we can sit around and think of things to fight about. Like, listen, in a war, when the bullets are flying, I I don't care about secondary things, right? It just doesn't matter. And and listen, we're we're coming more and more into a day and age where we're going to begin to face, I believe, persecution in North America, it's already, already beginning. I heard one pastor call it stink-eye persecution. That's how it starts, right? The world just gives us a stink-eye and doesn't trust us, and it affects your jobs, and, and then that leads to what? To death, eventually. And if it suddenly becomes illegal to be a Christian, and someone comes to my house and wants to know about Jesus, do you really think I'm going to ask, were you baptized by immersion or sprinkling? I don't care. Come in before you get shot in the street for loving Jesus. Jesus has appointed us to go and and bear fruit that abides. Go and make disciples. Tell people living in darkness that they can be rescued by Jesus. And so I believe when we focus on the big things, the gospel, the imminent return of Jesus, the growing hostility towards Christianity, it actually helps me love people. And again, I can can let go of, of differences of opinion. And then overall, you know, as we love one another, we desperately need the Holy Spirit. This is, this is kind of one of the main themes of the whole Upper Room Discourse, chapters 14 through 17. 
where Jesus says, I'm not leaving you by yourself. I'm actually giving you the Holy Spirit. And I believe it's the Spirit that helps us love one another. As we abide in Jesus, as we swallow our pride, as we stay focused on the big major things, it's the Spirit of God who actually helps us love each other. So, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for um, a challenging passage. Um, I know that I am so guilty uh, oftentimes of not having love for other believers because I allow differences of opinion and, and minor differences in theology or differences in, you know, pragmatic things, how we do things. I've allowed that to cause division in my own heart and our relationships. So, God, we desperately need your help to obey this command that you've given us, to love each other as you have loved us. I, I thank you for so many in this church that do this so well. Um, there are so many here that I know that they go out of their way. How can I sacrifice and serve my fellow believers? God, would you just bless them? Help us to learn from them how they do that. And God, I pray for those of us like myself who struggle with this, that you would help us. That as we abide in you and as we receive and hear the gospel as we abide in your word that you would change our hearts and that that would produce in us a mutual love for one another again not not going soft on doctrine and saying oh you know what it doesn't matter what anyone believes no not at all but weighing it out and going okay does their theological difference from me actually warrant a breaking of fellowship or is this just a, a disagreement a difference of opinion um, help us to have wisdom in this, God. But ultimately, I pray that our love for one another would bear fruit as we go and we sacrifice for each other, that the world would ask, why are you living like this? And that we would see much fruit from that, more followers that abide in you, and that, God, you would receive glory for the way that we live our lives. So help us in this. I pray that we would be a church known for our love for each other. And so I just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.